On this special episode, recorded on June 10th, 2020, I interview Vice President, Libertarian candidate Spike Cohen about this campaign season, what it actually means to be a Libertarian, and dispelling some misconceptions about Libertarianism. We also talk about the problems the United States is facing today due to corruption, overtaxation, and the mismanagement in local, state, and federal governments, and how these problems can be solved by the administration led by him and his running mate for president, Joe Jorgensen. I'm your host, Eric Fisk, from the Fedora Chronicles radio show. Thank you for listening and enjoy this interview with Spike Cohen. Uh, right now, um, on the line here, I have Libertarian vice presidential candidate, Spike Cohen. Um, and like I had said in the in, in the pre-show chat, I, I looked you up. You're a very interesting character. You have a very unique point of view. Welcome to the show. And oh, thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Let's get started with the beginning. Sure. Who are you, and how did you get here? <laughs> I like that. Let's get started at the beginning. Who are you? Um, so, hey, everyone uh, listening uh, in. My name is Spike Cohen, and for those who don't know me, uh, I started a web design company in my teens back in 1999. And three years ago, I decided to retire from web design and focus my life on my real passion, which is spreading the message of liberty to a public that often hasn't heard of our ideas and our solutions. And that culminated in my becoming the host of My Fellow Americans, the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom, and the co-owner of Muddied Waters Media. And for the past few years, we have built uh, quite a, a you know online media network with a reach that's uh, measured in the millions and several tens of thousands of followers across social media. And uh, about six months ago, I chose to I decided to run for the Libertarian Party's vice presidential nomination and have been running a, a somewhat unorthodox campaign, kind of a combination of um, very direct, um, empathetic and engaging and dynamic messaging, often reaching out to people outside of libertarian circles uh, to bring them into the libertarian message and the libertarian party, which is not typically how that's done during the nomination process because our it's actually our delegates who choose the nominees. So typically we are only doing delegate servicing uh, during that first few months of, of trying to get the nomination. Uh, I started off by you know demonstrating as a proof of concept how we could bring more people in uh, as as how I could bring more people in as the nominee. And it apparently has paid off. And I also do a lot of, um, I guess, humorous and satirical campaigning as well. Uh, I am primarily a serious campaigner and always have been. Uh, but in appropriate times, I find that uh, satire and humor is very useful in reaching people that typically don't want to hear political messaging from anyone because from what i understand you first started your campaign running with vermin supreme yes who's a bit of a, a, a legend here in new hampshire oh yeah tell us about vermin supreme and 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 what is he really like well i'll tell you this if you're in new hampshire you probably know vermin supreme just almost probably as well as i do uh just for as long as he's been doing his thing up here for those who know, obviously, Vermin Supreme is a, a well-respected political satirist who is beloved by millions, very, very well-known. He has built an incredible brand around his style of nonlinear messaging. As a, just as an individual, one of my greatest blessings and joys that I have had in this campaign has been getting to know uh, Vermin Supreme, someone I had been following pretty closely since 2008, was a big fan of, but now can count him as an actual friend. Um, he is one of the uh, most thoughtful and caring people I have ever met in my life. And he's also incredibly brilliant. He is often one of the smartest, if not the smartest people in the room whenever he's in a room. He's an incredibly, incredibly uh, uh, talented and smart and brilliant and thoughtful and caring human being. And I am uh, absolutely blessed to know him. Um, it is out of his caring and compassion and thoughtfulness and brilliance that he has come up with this style of nonlinear messaging. He saw that the majority of Americans right now are so disgusted with politics that an increasing number of them, something like 40% of Americans, don't vote. Mm -hmm. and, the, and when I say 40% of Americans, 40% of eligible voters do not vote. 
And if you look at the reasons that they give for why they don't vote, it's typically the same thing. They think that, you know, government has it out for them, that all politicians lie, that it doesn't matter what politicians are saying because they're just lying. And it doesn't matter who you vote for. You're going to get the same thing and it's going to be terrible. The system is designed, you know, for at everyone else's expense to the benefit of a, a small handful of powerful people. These are all very libertarian ideas yeah. not to vote or not to participate. And if we could reach them with our message, we'd be able to bring them in, or at least a lot of them in, because we intuitively get they intuitively get what we're already saying, which is that this system has to be completely reformed and in some cases dismantled in order for us to have a, a society that is more decentralized and fair and equitable. And the problem is they don't want to hear anything from anyone. They don't want to hear a libertarian say anything. They don't want to hear any politician say anything. But if you entertain them, if you get them in and you entertain them, and they understand that there's some kind of underlying political message there, but they're not worried about that. They're just enjoying themselves. You get their attention, and because you're not a politician who's they're either boring them or, or you know making them feel challenged or making them feel like they're being lied or pandered to, their cognitive defenses go down because they're just enjoying themselves with you, and they want they get drawn in more and more by the humor and the good nature of everything. Again, they know there's an underlying message there, but they're just having a good time. But over time, they start to wonder about that underlying message. What is this all about? What is it that you are doing? Why are you doing this? What do you believe? And that's when we hit them with the message. That's when we talk to them about libertarian solutions, self-ownership, non-aggression, voluntary solutions, and so forth. That's how we hit them with that. We call it boot pilling, and it worked amazingly. We, we actually won a presidential recruitment competition where we got uh, nearly twice as many new recruits to the party as every other candidate combined. So as a proof of concept, it absolutely works. He's an absolute genius. I am blessed to continue to be campaigning with him and have him uh, as a part of this second phase of our campaign with uh, me running with my running mate, Joe Jorgensen, and, and spreading the message of liberty far and wide to the American public. Because here's the scary thing. There's never been a better time for a third party candidate. Yep. Now, one of the things that I have said on this show time and time again is that my vote is up for grabs for any third party because I'll be damned if I vote for Donald Trump and I'll be damned if I vote for Joe Biden. Exactly. Um, from your perspective, from your point of view as a libertarian, oh wait, you know what? Let's let's table that for a second. What exactly is a libertarian, uh, and what are the misconceptions of libertarianism that you want to dispel? Absolutely. So. And we could spend hours talking about libertarianism, and libertarians actually like to spend hours talking about libertarianism. But in a nutshell, libertarians believe that we all own ourselves, we own our lives, we own our bodies, we own our labor, and we own the product of our labor, which is our property. And we believe that any that that no one should take from anyone's self or life or uh, body or labor or property without their consent. I shouldn't take from you, you shouldn't take from me. And when that happens, we call that an act of aggression. And so we have something called the non-aggression principle, which basically says that we all own ourselves and our lives and property and so forth uh, and our bodies, and that we should only, we all inherently and intuitively um, enjoy ex exclusively the use and enjoyment of the things that we own and are inherent to us uh, and that we can give those things out or sell those things or rent those things or whatever else we want to do with those as we see fit but that no nothing should ever be taken from us against our will without our consent and so we don't just believe that 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 non -aggre that aggression is bad from a moral standpoint that you shouldn't harm people you shouldn't take their stuff you shouldn't try to tell them what to do but we also believe that it doesn't work from a utilitarian standpoint. It just doesn't work. Because if I can take from you and everyone else that's listening at any time that I want uh, and just take at will, I'm not going to be a good steward of what I have because I can just take more whenever I want to. I don't, I don't have to worry about providing value to any of you to get something in exchange because I can just take it from you. And so since I can just take it from you, I don't have to be a good steward of what I have. So I'm going to make bad decisions with what I have. And the rest of you might not make the best decisions either because, you know, I could take it from you at any moment. So you're thinking, while I have it, I might as well do something with it. Maybe not the best choice, but I might as well use it before I lose it. And what is government and its terrible, centrally planned, arbitrarily defined, crony-friendly, harmful, inequitable, and abusive solutions, but a system whereby government, an, a, a, an entity, has presumed the authority 
to take from all of us as it sees fit. And so as libertarians, we believe that the most just and fair and equitable society is going to be one in which that power is decentralized and where people's self-ownership and the ownership of the things that are inherently theirs is respected as much as possible so that we can work together voluntarily to find solutions to the problems that we face rather than having some kind of top-down, centrally planned presumed authority standing over us, imposing its solutions on us, which more often than not either create problems or make them worse. Uh, some of the misconceptions are that libertarians are just a bunch of rich people who don't care about anyone else and just want to keep their own and they don't want to pay taxes because they don't care about each other. The people that I know who are libertarian are the most giving people I know. Uh, a, a very close friend of mine recently had a situation where uh, they had a heart attack in their family. And within a matter of hours, our community raised several thousand dollars so that they won't have to worry about their finances for at least the next couple of months. Now, these were not wealthy people. These were people who were taking from their own paychecks and from their own savings. Some of them taking from that $1,200 they're still trying to make stretch as far as they can because they haven't been labeled essential yet. The government's still not allowing them to work mm -hmm. or operate their business. And they're giving to others. So we are the most giving and most caring people that I've ever met. We just don't believe that charity should be accomplished through a centralized authority that imposes poverty on people and entrenches generational poverty on them by putting roadblocks and regulatory barriers that all but criminalize the poor trying to get ahead in life and then handing them scraps that they stole from them. We don't consider that charity. Charity is when those things have been removed and we can help each other in charity and mutual aid to get ahead in life. So that's, that's one of the biggest misconceptions. We actually want to eliminate the terrible oligarchical structures that are in place that are creating so much uh, poverty and are, are, are widening that gap in income uh, inequality that we see that's just getting worse and worse with each year. We just recognize that it's never going to come from a centrally planned authority. They're the ones who created this problem, and we will solve it through voluntary solutions. Crazy question that I keep being asked when I tell people that I'm leaning more libertarian. Okay. Because so many people say, well, if, if libertarians ran everything, we wouldn't have roads and we wouldn't have schools and we wouldn't have the yes. police. Uh, we wouldn't have basic services. How do you answer that? This is similar to uh, when the USSR was breaking down and people said, where will we get food? And it's because up until that point, many of them had never experienced a reality in which the government wasn't in charge of giving them food. But let's step back for a second. All of these things, roads, schools, um, uh, security, uh, um, everything, anything that you need, health care, any of these things that you need, they have a demand. And if they have a demand then someone's going to want to supply it because if that thing has a demand, then it has a value. What happens is when we put government in charge of these things, we're not actually providing value and we're not actually fixing the problem. What we're doing is we're putting a central authority in charge of coming up with a one-size-fits-all top-down solution that costs a fortune because they're now spending money that, again, that they can take from all of us as they see fit. And they impose solutions on us that are basically given to them by well-heeled cronies who see that the money and the power is being centralized. So instead of going out into the market and providing value to the market and to the people in order to get money, they just go straight to the top and they send and they give them laws and they say, here, sign this law. It's going to make us wealthy and we'll keep donating to your campaign contributions. And they sign the laws, they become the law. And now what happens? Now cronies are controlling everything. So we have a situation, perfect example with education. Where the cost of education continues to skyrocket, especially higher education, and we're not seeing any corresponding increase in value. We are not seeing an increase in the literacy rate. If anything, we've seen a drop. We're That's seeing right. a drop in the number of, of high school graduates who are functionally illiterate, or we've seen, seen a, a rise in the number of high school graduates who are functionally illiterate. What we propose to do with education, with health care, with uh, infrastructure, with everything else, we look at how every time government gets more involved in those things, the cost goes up, the access gets worse, and the overall uh, uh, and and the ability to have access becomes more and more inequitable. It becomes more and more accessible to the wealthy, and less and less accessible to the poor. And we recognize that by removing government from that equation taking out the politicians and the cronies and the bureaucrats and putting decisions of like education and healthcare directly with the people who are involved in the case of education with parents and with teachers and their children. 
we can now come up with equitable equitable solutions that are based in those communities and their specific needs instead of these top-down standardized solutions that help that leave most people behind and and cause massive cost overruns in the process that's the thing though isn't it because it just seems to me that everybody is just so exhausted because they have to work so many hours to pay yes. so the bills they people aren't even able to like function as citizens the way the founding fathers had originally en envisioned it and we keep getting less bang for the bigger buck that we keep paying into the system uh we have a situation where for the average two-person household, the person who is making less is basically paying all of the various federal, state, and local tax and regulatory burdens. Don't so I you have it. one person whose entire purpose of working full-time, sometimes working multiple jobs, the whole reason they're doing that is so that the government can get their piece. And of course, that piece gets bigger and bigger over time because we focus on the income tax, but there's so many other things. There's the uh, the cost that's added to the prices of goods and services from sales taxes and value-added taxes and tariffs on imported goods and uh, you know uh, all of the various regulatory compliance costs that keep getting added to the price of goods and services. All of these things amount to something like anywhere from 40 to 60%, depending on where you live and your income level, of your wealth being stolen from you with no real corresponding value happening there. Because again, if you needed those services, education, uh, uh, roads, uh, utilities in some places where the utilities are, are, are a public thing, in all of those cases, if there's a demand for it, which there is, there would be competing providers. Because here's the other thing. Here's the other part of, of what we believe. There are two ways to get services in a market. One is from competing providers who trip over each other to try to give you the best value for uh, for your money because they want your business. And another is through a monopoly who can give you pretty much whatever they want because they're the only game in town and they know it and you know it and they know you know it. What is government except a monopoly that also monopolizes the ability to use force and is funded by theft? And you're anyone who thinks that you're going to get more equitable and, and fair and helpful solutions from an organization that knows they're the only game in town and you have to pay them under penalty of law, I, I think that you would I, I think that we would be better off getting those solutions provided by competing providers who can't basically put a gun to your head and tell you that you have to pay them. Yeah. Because you keep hearing about kitchen table issues. Right. Whereas a, you know, once a week or a couple of times a month a month couples sit down or single parents sit down and they try and like balance the budget, pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's kind of, it, you look at where all the money goes and you should be saving like a family, like, like mine, we should be saving thousands of dollars a month. Right. And it's like, and, and we look at each other, you know, and we're we're paying all the bills and there's no money left over and if anything we're slipping just a little further into debt depending on right. the month and it's like yep. where like where does the money go and then when you look at other things like you know tolls for roads and the, and and the, and the sales tax and and they they get you you know with all of these like we have to register our cars and stuff like that there's all of this revenue that the government is gobbling up look at gasoline tax the yeah. gasoline tax is how how and do you really even know how much sales tax is in a for every gallon of gas i don't think right. anybody knows i i know and it and, and it's actually so those are the taxes we can at least look up and see directly we can see what the sales tax is we can see what the income tax is we can see what the property tax is we can see what you know the various uh fees and so forth that they add to things are what we don't see is the regulatory burden costs, the cost of businesses having to comply with various government mandates and taxes and fees and regulations that drives up the cost of things more and more. There are charts that show how things like education, higher education, healthcare and housing, things that are more regulated and subsidized and mandated by government have been skyrocketing in cost, while other things that are far less mandated and regulated and subsidized by government, like 
furniture and software and consumer electronics yeah. have actually been going down uh, adjusted for inflation. They, they've actually seen a drop in pricing because those are things that the government doesn't feel like are too you know, necessary or important. And so thankfully, they largely leave it alone. They dig their claws into the things that they know that we need as a life or death situation. We need to have a certain level of education. We need to have a certain level of health care. We need to have a certain level of housing and shelter. And so they do their best to drive up their, those costs so that we become reliant on them, at least partially, for the provision of those services and goods that would have been far better gotten if they had simply gotten out of the way and allowed the market to do its thing. And we see that with every single thing, housing, education, uh, infrastructure as well. Look at that. Look, every time your taxes go up and they go, well, it's to pay for roads. And then you go out and your roads are garbage. Yep. I got news for you. And then meanwhile, you have companies like Pizza Hut and Domino's that are paving the roads for free just as a PR opp opportunity at no cost to you unless you buy their, their pizza. Uh -oh. So this is how a market works. People voluntarily finding solutions because A, they want to, B, it helps their bottom line and their self-interest, and C, they know that if they don't do it, someone else will do it better, as opposed to government who does it for their own political interests, who does it knowing that they, you have no other game in town, and who does it knowing that they can take from you at will and there's nothing you can do about it. Let's just say hypothetical situation, because, mm -hmm. I mean, again, like I said, there's never been a better time for a third-party candidate to step in. Right. Um. How are you two, the two of you, you and Joe Jurgensen, who are running together, a president and vice president, let's say you guys get into office. The two of you are like day one, um, uh, uh, January 21st, the day after the inauguration, you finally right. have to get to work. What's the first thing you were going to do to stop the, the, the leeching off the American people? What's the first thing you're going to do? First things that we do is stop the harm. We end the wars. We start the process of bringing the troops home so that the wars end and the healing can begin. We It, it ends the, the rash of PTSD and suicide among uh, troops and veterans. It ends the traumatic brain injury. It adds the, uh, you know, the, the lives lost, not to mention the lives lost and the, and, the, and the damage and the trauma that's being done overseas by those actions. Um, we end that. We end the war on drugs. We, we uh, pardon, immediately pardon, all of the victims of the war on drugs. We end the war on sex work and immediately pardon all the people that have been imprisoned by sex work. We work to systematically dismantle at the executive level, which is something that because Congress has been spending decades abdicating increasing amounts of their authority to the executive by creating one agency after the next, which has essentially legislative authority. They're given such broad authority through these laws and bills that they pass that the executive, the executive offices that they create have a tremendous latitude to create what the founders would have considered legislative decisions, but they're basically just executive regulatory decisions that have been abdicated to them by the legislature many years, in some cases, many decades ago. And the silver lining of that is that when someone like Joe Jorgensen and I come into office, we're able to just start undoing all of that without even having to go to the legislature. So the first thing is we end the harm. We end the, the harm of the gun laws. We end the harm of the drug laws and the laws against sex work. We end the harm uh, by freeing the people from the, the prisons that are there for victimless commerce. We free the people from the cages on the, on the border whose only crime was walking across a line without having their government papers in order. Something that the founders were completely against, by the way. For the first hundred years of the United States existence, we had unlimited, unregulated immigration. The only time that the federal government got involved at all was if they wanted to become citizens. That's the situation that they envision, and it's the one that the Libertarian Party envisions as well, one in which America is reopened to as much migration and trade as we possibly want. Um, we will. So the short answer is we end the harm. We stop the harm being done. We undo countless regulations that act as a way of putting the boot on the neck of the American people as they try to solve the problems that are often imposed upon them or made worse by that very government that puts that boot on their neck. The other issue that you're going to have to tackle with is lobbyists, because the lobbyists represent the corporation and the corporations oh, yeah. are run and owned by the oligarchs. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do to stop the lobbyists who are essentially the 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 people who do the bidding or have our senators and congressmen do the bidding of the deep mm -hmm. state? What are you going to do about the lobbyists? Well, let's look at why, why they're there for money. So what do we do? We cut off their money. The Federal Reserve exists because the American people would never allow their taxes to be increased to pay for 
80 or 90 percent of what the government does. It's one thing to say we need government for roads or we need government for you know, schools at the local level or we need government to protect us against aggression. American people would never say, yep, let's uh, let's raise our taxes to pay for the continued invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Or let's raise our taxes to pay for the genocide that the U.S. government is sponsoring through the Saudi government in Yemen yep. uh, or the, the, the genocide that, that just fin- that's been finishing up in Syria or in Libya. Let's raise our taxes to pay to put millions of Americans in prison for con- uh, consuming or selling a product that the government decides they shouldn't be allowed to sell, something that had no victim at all. Let's put people in prison. Let's pay- raise our taxes to run camps on the border that are filled with families who just wanted to come here and make a better life. Let's, uh, you know, let's raise our taxes to pay for all these terrible, harmful things that 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 harm us to the benefit of a very small number of well-heeled cronies. That all ends. It ends because with the Federal Reserve, they don't need to tax us immediately. They just print out endless trillions of Federal Reserve notes for whatever political concerns they want, for whatever need that they that they have, whatever thing they want to, whatever boondoggle or, or terrible idea they have. And that's the most insidious way of taxing us because now not only do we have to pay off that debt with interest because they print out those notes and lend it to the federal to the government at you know low interest rates that we then have to pay off over the next 20, 30, 40 years. So not only are they now getting us on those debts with interest, but when they keep printing out these endless Federal Reserve notes without any corresponding increase in value, it destroys the value of those same Federal Reserve notes that we have in our wallets and our bank accounts that the federal government forces us to use through their monopoly on the issuance of currency. And so because we have to use that as legal tender and because they're able to print out, print out endless amounts of it, that's why the cost of living has been steadily increasing as simply a matter of fact, something we, we just acknowledge as being a reality of life now. Ever since the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, a dollar bill now is worth something like two cents what it was worth yeah. 107 years ago. And so we would end that. Um, and, and so that's, that is by ending that. And another thing that we plan to do is to uh, end the income tax and free the victims of the war on income. Um, and, uh, you know, if government wants to be funded, it can fund direct services for voluntary fees for those services. But we're going to begin to dismantle the system whereby government can simply print out endless notes and make us pay back the, the loans or, or steal from us directly. If government has a, a service that provides value, then there will be a demand and people will be willing to pay for that service. That alone ends the cronyism because now the only way cronies can make money, just like everyone else, is by providing value, having something that people actually have a demand for. When you eliminate the system of theft, the kleptocracy that our government currently is, you get rid of the cronies in one fell swoop because they don't have any reason to be there. They're not going to get anything by being there because we have nothing to give them. Well, there's also the other issue that you brought up, the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an incredible book, The Monster of Jekyll Island, which is, I mean, it's a thick book. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, do you remember phone books? It's like, it's thick, like a phone book. <laughs> what are we going to do with the Federal Reserve and the monstrous debt that they have run up once the libertarians take office in Washington? Well, there are some different theories about how to deal with the debt. The biggest thing right now is and the and the continued harm. And that, that's really our policy in general. It's great to talk about what to do with the damage that's already been done. Let's stop the continuing harm and then we can focus on that. So the way we would handle the Federal Reserve is first audit it so people can see what's actually in there and why it's so terrible. And then we end it and then we move to a system of free market banking. We're competing banks, possibly even competing states, but competing banks will come up with competing and ever more dynamic and ever more valuable forms of currency that they will have a vested interest in making it retain its value, possibly even gain in value, so that they'll you'll use their currency instead of one of their competitors' currencies. So imagine a situation in which the cost of living might actually go down slowly over time, or, or at the very least not continue just going up forever. That's the reality of what would happen in a free market banking system. Now, the question of the debt, there are many different uh, angles to this. Some, some say that if we you know write off the debt, then it will cause you know un un uh, un uh, measurable harm to the market, and that we simply have to pay it off because it's a it's a debt that you know so many businesses and and firms and so forth that built themselves around. Other people say that any debt that is run up by an organization that presumes the authority to steal from everyone is an illegitimate debt, and that it should just be uh, you know wiped off the slate. Uh, I really uh, remain somewhat neutral on that. I have some opinions on that, but I think 
in terms of our administration, what the biggest focus is going to be on is on ending the debt, ending the the you know uh, the deficit, ending the, con- the continued contribution to the debt, getting rid of the Federal Reserve so that that doesn't continue anymore, and uh, and getting rid of the taxation so that people are able to keep their own money and only provide money to government in exchange for services that they actually want and need. Um, and and from there, I'll, you know, we'll leave it. We'll 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 have a great once we get there, then we can have a good debate about what to do with the existing debt. Because we also have the other issue of borrowing money from other nations, Mm. such as China. There's also the trade deficit. Do you guys have an answer for that? How do we tackle that? Yeah, so trade deficit is is a thing where, for example, when I go to Walmart, uh, I have a great trade deficit with them because they don't buy stuff from me. But that kind of dispels the the notion of a trade deficit. There is no deficit there. I went to Walmart, I chose to buy products from them, and they gave me products that I felt like were at least as worth or worth more than the money I exchanged it for, which is why I went there. Same thing with any other store. The thing with China is the way that we have framed the China situation is one that benefits the oligarchs. We see it as an us versus them situation instead of what it really is, a situation whereby oligarchs and cronies have set up a system with a dictatorial government to bypass the the regulations that they have imposed on this market so that their smaller competitors can't compete with them. So let me break that down very quickly. The reason why an increasing number of jobs are going overseas to countries like China is because the ultra-wealthy companies, the well-heeled cronies, recognize that the best way that they can get rid of their smaller competitors is to drive up the regulatory burdens that it will harm them as well, but they can afford it, but their smaller competitors can't. So they get all of these labor regulations and all of these tax regulations and all these various regulations and, 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 and all sorts of red tape that they get passed in order to make small and medium businesses go out of business that can't compete with them. And then when things get too rough for those big businesses where they can't afford it either, they just pack up and move several thousand miles somewhere else and pay the billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars to refit their their base of operations somewhere else because they can afford to do so. And they get chummy relationships with dictatorial governments that employ slave labor often or something close to slave labor, very low wage, uh, under rewarded labor uh, in order to be able to provide those goods and services. And then they ship it thousands of miles back here and sell it back to us. Now, there's the economic damage, the obvious economic damage that's being done as a result of that uh, to the small businesses and the workers here that weren't able to compete, weren't able to move to China to to do work there. There's the environmental damage to the fact that now the carbon footprint of that, that good or service is exponentially higher because it's being made over there and shipped thousands of miles instead of being made you know, up the road or in the, the nearby, the neighboring state. So the, the, the amount of, uh, you know, fossil fuels and the amount of energy that's being burned to, to get that product from where it was made to where it's being sold is it goes up sometimes 10 or a hundred times what it would have been if it was still made locally. And then there's the problem of the fact that it's propping up these dictatorial governments that are able to, you know, be awash with all of this foreign investment money um, to get around the regulations that we put in place here. That is a purely crony-driven system. So the problem isn't in and of itself that we are buying more things from Chinese companies than Chinese companies are buying from us. In fact, typically a trade uh, deficit between a wealthy country and a poor country is a sign of a healthy trade relationship. It means we're buying more stuff from them and we're getting value for what we want. That's not the problem. The problem is the way in which it has happened. And it has happened because of the regulations on this market, on the American market, that have been put in place by the cronies and enforced by those those terrible people in government. You really put a lot of thought into that. That's... <laughs> <laughs> That's like, because the thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here. It's like, I can't stump this guy. <laughs> what? Because, because <laughs> um, the thing it's is, because you're not the first, I just recently was interviewed by someone else who said, wait, do you not have, is there nothing you don't have an answer to? I said, no, I, I'm pretty sure I've thought through a lot of this stuff. Like that's why I'm running for VP. I kind of have some good ideas here. Yeah, no kidding. Because the thing <laughs> is, 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 is that, um, I think that you're the first libertarian candidate that I've spoken to. And I'm telling you, I mean, there are a lot of candidates who come through New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like one-stop shopping for, for political oh, candidates. No, I was up there for the primaries. I saw it firsthand, my friend. I oh. get it. You guys, you guys become the, the ground zero for national politics. We come, we, we, for six to nine months, we come, become the center of the universe and then, then we don't hear or see anything from anybody 
for, for another three and a half years. For three yeah. and a half years. Um, because I have, I, have, I have friends that are Democrat who talk libertarian. Yep. They're, they're, it's almost like they're libertarians that are convinced that they're Democrats. And the same right. thing with Republicans. They, mm-hmm. they, they say that they're Republican, but they, they say that they're Republicans, but they sound libertarian. Did that, does that make any sense? It, it does. And, and I think what's happened is they, they've often fallen into the media-driven rope-a-dope, that there's a marked difference between the Republicans and Democrats. So they'll say, yes, I don't really agree that much with the Republicans or Democrats, but I got to vote Democrat or those Republicans are going to get in. Or I got to vote Demo- Republican or those Democrats are going to get in. And what I invite people who believe that to do is to recognize, to step back for a moment with me and look at the fact that the Republicans and Democrats have almost exclusively well, at the federal level, completely exclusively, and at the state and local level, all but exclusively controlled everything for the better part of 160 years. And it doesn't matter which side gets elected. It doesn't matter who's in control of Congress. It doesn't matter who's the president. It doesn't matter which side appointed the most justices to the Supreme Court. We just keep seeing the same thing. Government gets bigger and more powerful and more costly and more brutal and more uh, infringing on our day-to-day lives, more involved in our day-to-day lives. And every once in a while, we will get some small victory that makes us feel like this side or that side was better. But we forget that it's completely outnumbered by all of the other losses that have happened during that same period of time. And so they use this rope-a-dope of, I got to vote for Trump to stop Biden. I got to vote for Biden to stop Trump. Well, I got news for you. We need to vote libertarian to stop the Republicrats. Yeah. Because they've been doing this to us for like, eight generations and it's never going to end until they're replaced because that's the real thing though isn't it because there is this this sense that it's one or the other you only get one or the other you guys the two of you and the rest of the libertarian party has a huge mountain to climb because you're shut out of all the televised debates. How are you going to break through that? How are you going to, are you even going to try and get on the debate stage or do you have a plan B? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, the plan B is to, is to utilize media as much as possible if we can't, but we absolutely plan to get on the debate stage. Gary Johnson and Bill Weld came very close. They got, uh, thir- in order to be able to get on the debate, according to the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates, which is a rigged system that is run by Republicans and Democrats. Right. Uh, and which also has an exclusivity clause in it so that if, if a Republican or Democrat agreed to, uh, to debate with us outside of that system, they wouldn't be allowed in that debate. So it's a debate cartel. And according to that debate cartel, you have to get 15% or more, your ticket has to get 15% or more in two what they call reputable polls in order to be able to get on the debate stage. Now, the problem there is that they don't require those polls to mention any option besides the Republicans and Democrats. And even still, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld came within spitting distance of getting on the debate stage. They they got 13% in one poll and 11% in two other ones. And I believe that in this environment that, like you said, on both the right and the left, between the lockdowns and the pandemic and the police brutality and the protests that have arisen as a result of that and the police overreaction to those protests, All of those things have created a condition in which the left and the right are more anti-government and anti-republicrat than they've ever been before. And so we are utilizing viral marketing and social media and and, you know, getting as many media appearances as possible to be able to get that 15 percent we need Uh, in an informal poll recently. uh, It's not a direct poll or scientific one, but we got 11 percent. So we're already within within spitting distance there. If we can get 15 percent on two on those two polls. We will be on the debate stage and all bets are off after that because Joe Jorgensen is an incredibly wise and brilliant and thoughtful and caring senior lecturer of psychology at Clemson University, who's also a self-made woman uh, who has owned and operated multiple businesses. And she's going to be put in front of two old men with terrible ideas and credible rape accusations who can barely form a coherent sentence between the two of them. And I think that that stark difference for even someone who's not politically involved, that stark difference will be as stark as it was when Ross Perot got on stage with George Bush and Bill Clinton. Right. And people realized that the emperor had no clothes there. 
And if you'll recall, Ross Perot on a few polls was actually leading before he decided to drop out. My, my theory is that he had no intention of, he didn't want to win. He just wanted to go in and right. upset the apple cart. But he did so well uh, and was able to get on the debate stage uh, that everything changed. And I think in a similar situation where it's Joe Jorgensen between those two fools and me between Mike Pence and whoever has the misfortune of being uh, Joe Biden's running mate. Oh, God. Uh, I, think that the, 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 I think that the choice will be very clear and very stark for an American public that is as outraged as they ever have been in recent memory. It's probably the 1960s. I, Because I, that's... That leads me to the next question. When did things go wrong with the country? When did the country go off the rails? I have a theory, but you you must have one as well. So, I, you know, I'm not sure. I think it depends on the subject because, I mean, there are some things where America has gotten better over time. If you look at how people of color are being treated, that has slowly improved over time. Still a long way to go, but it, it has slowly improved. If you look at the financial situation, that has slowly worsened over time. If you look at the overall situation with just the sheer amount of government and involvement in our lives, uh, I think that, you know, uh, that has slowly gotten worse over time. People can point to all sorts of different things. They can point to moments after the, you know, a few year matter of years after the Constitution was passed and the government immediately moved to seize people's guns during the Whiskey Rebellion, which was a complete violation of the Constitution. Uh, they could have moved, they could have looked at the genocides that uh, Andrew Jackson illegally did during his reign in office when the Supreme Court was actually telling him he couldn't do those things. And he his answer was to tell them to use whatever army they had to stop them. Uh, we could point to uh, during the time of, of chattel slavery, where government was used as an enforcement mechanism for the most inhumane system that has ever existed on American soil. You could look at the, the, the genocide of the natives and the, the, the theft of their land through violence and fraud uh, that has existed and continues to this day. Uh, you could look at you could look at, uh, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, s- illegally suspending habeas corpus and throwing people in jail for disagreeing with his war. You could look at the Federal Reserve and the and the, the IRS being created. Yep. You could look at our involvement in World War One. I. I mean, there, we, we could spend there are so many different turning points. Uh, so I'm not sure I can really point to one. But what we have is a is a long series, a long history that demonstrates that the more power and influence and wealth is centralized and the more decision-making power is centralized and a handful of people, the more harmful and inequitable and abusive those decisions are going to end up being. Because my sort of pet the- theory of mine okay, is the Kennedy assassination when the oligarchs came right out and said, no, no, we're in charge of this country. You, you're not you're not going to audit our illegal bank. You're not you're we put all this money and resource into this illegal war in Indochina. No, no, this is we're in charge now. I think for me, that's when the switch was flipped. And I think that the large corporations just took over the country during the 60s. And that's why that there's just so much social upheaval during the 60s. We also see a lot of social upheaval going on now. Um, it's, I know that this is going to be controversial. I don't know if you want to tackle this, but what do you think about what's going on with the, the pandemic uh, with with COVID? And how would you two have handled the uh, uh, the quarantine or whatever it is that we're, we're dealing with right now? Absolutely. And by the way, as a side note, this will have to be the, the last question. But um, OK, OK. The, um, yeah, we're just running a little bit over, but that's OK. Yep. Um, so with the pandemic, this is a perfect example of how government ruins everything. Right. So we knew that there was a disease that was similar to SARS, but could also spread asymptomatically, which changes everything. It means it's much more difficult to contain, if not impossible to contain. And that all hands have to be on deck the very second that you find out that it's set foot in your country. Problem was, it was illegal to test for COVID-19 for the first six to eight weeks that it was here because of a ridiculous CDC regulation that said that if you wanted to test for COVID-19, you had to go through this permitting process first, which usually takes months. It could take four to six months in some cases. Well, by then, everyone would have it. So thankfully, we had a handful of doctors like Dr. Helen Chu at the University of Washington in Seattle who put their Hippocratic Oath 
above the regulations. They created the, t- the tests, which are, you know, uh, uh, apparently easy if you know how to do such a thing. And when they had patients coming in saying, hey, doc, I was in Wuhan, China or the surrounding area and I'm feeling sick and it sounds a lot like this coronavirus thing that I'm hearing about on the news. They illegally made the tests and they tested them. And some of those results, good number of those re- results came back positive. And so in quite a, uh, an impressive act of civil disobedience, they actually sent the results to the CDC and said, listen, it's already here. Enough with these regulations. We need to start moving. We need to start testing and containing and tracing and everything else so we can get a hold on this thing before it's spreading so widely that we can't do anything and we'll have to tell everyone to stay home. And the, the CDC's initial response, these are medical professionals who work for this bureaucratic system who know how stupid what they're about to say is, but it was what their job was. And their response was to say, destroy all of those tests, tell no one you did them, and don't even tell the patients what the results are, and do not treat them. Send them home. Thankfully, those doctors again put their Hippocratic Oath above whatever the ridiculous sheet of paper said, and they released those results to the public. And in that impressive and brave show of civil disobedience, they actually forced the CDC's hand. Now, we could spend hours talking about all the regulatory burdens that are in place that make healthcare less accessible and drive up the cost exponentially. But the bottom line is that every example is one in which government in the war, in the best of times makes healthcare less accessible and more ex, uh, less accessible and more expensive and in times like this causes hundreds of thousands of people to die unnecessarily. And and then as a in, a, in an over in a in an overcorrection from that, then you had the states telling who who was essential and who was non-essential and telling everyone they had to stay home. And now you'll you'll notice we were never told not to go to Walmart or Costco, yeah. Target or buy stuff off of Amazon. We were told we can't go to the furniture store. We were told we couldn't get our hair cut. We were told we couldn't go to the beach. We were told that we couldn't go to small businesses. It just so happened that the essential businesses were all the ones that had the best positioning within their state and local governments. We would have stopped all of that by getting rid of those regulations so that when it was first traced to be here, the healthcare professionals could have immediately jumped on it, immediately started testing people and containing them and treating them and dealing with the problem so that it wouldn't have made it completely go away here, but we'd be in a situation much closer closer to that of Taiwan or South Korea or uh, Japan and, and some other places, Hong Kong, where they jumped on it immediately because they didn't have anything the way stopping them from doing it. And they were treated people and got them, you know, treated, focused on the people who are the most likely to get it and the people who already had it so that the rest of the country, and the rest of the world didn't have to shut down as a result. That's what we would have done. Before you go, I know we're short on time. I want you to plug okay. your website and I want you to plug everything you can within the few short minutes you have left. <laughs> Tell us where can we find you and where can we listen to you more? And I want you to come back in a month because I got, I got more questions for you on healthcare alone. Absolutely. That'll be great. I look forward to it. So our website is joej2020.com. That's J-O-J-2020 dot com. Joe Jorgensen and I are running a campaign to set America free, to remove those terrible centrally planned uh, imposed solutions that we've been talking about during this show so that we can live freer and happier lives. Imagine a world in which you are able to keep your own money. And it doesn't lose value over time because endless dollars aren't being printed out in your name to pay for things that do not help you. Imagine a world in which people are set free from the cages that they're in for engaging in commerce that the government decided they shouldn't be allowed to do and where they don't have to spend the rest of their lives choosing between abject poverty and a life of crime to be able to get ahead in life. Imagine a world in which we can bring the troops home and they can begin to heal, and the PTSD, and the, the, the suicide epidemic, and the traumatic brain injury, and all the damage that's happening, and the lives lost, the flag-draped coffins coming home comes to an end, and the countless amounts of harm and death that's happening overseas as a result of those wars also ends, and we can heal and improve our relations with those countries. Imagine a world in which the cost of living markedly goes down because the government isn't imposing itself on everyone who's trying to make a living and provide value and goods, goods and services to everyone else in the market. Imagine a world in which your education is taken out of the hands of bureaucrats and politicians and cronies in Washington and put back where it belongs with you 
and the teachers and your children. Imagine a situation, a similar one with healthcare, where the, the healthcare decisions are taken out of those cronies who've driven up the costs and driven down the access. And when uh, people can no longer just buy pharmaceutical companies and gut the research and development teams and jack up the prices of healthcare because we get rid of those ridiculous patent laws that protect them for doing that, so that your healthcare can be more affordable and more accessible. Imagine a world in which you are freer, safer, happier, and healthier. A world where your children's future is greater than we could even imagine right now. That is a world that Joe Jorgensen, Joe Jorgensen and I are fighting for. And with your help and your support and your vote, we plan to take that all the way to Washington. Thank you. That's an amazing. I'm going to let you go. And I cannot wait to talk to you again. Thank you for coming thank on you the show. Again. Thank right. you again, Eric. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. All right. Congratulations on surviving another episode of the Thor Chronicles radio show. Find out more about the Fedora Chronicles by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com. That's where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram by simply searching for us on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so that you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at google.com, are great ways to drop us a line with your comments and show topic suggestions. And if it's any good, we promise we will read your comment on the air. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash fedorachronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the podcast, updates on what we're doing, and for $5 a month, you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug of your choice. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at zazzle.com store slash Fedora Chronicles. The theme songs for the show are Royal Flush and Black Cabaret by Olive Music. All other music on the show is listed on the show page and has been provided to us by Premium Beats from Shutterstock. Copyright The Fedora Chronicles 2020, all rights reserved. On behalf of my co-host Jason and I, this is Eric Renderking Fisk signing off and reminding you to keep your chins up and your fedoras on.